Uh, this morning, we're going to be going through uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. So if you could open your Bibles. I was sorely tempted this morning as you're turning. Um, a lot of the Sunday school teachers will tell you that when they have a small group of kids show up, you know, when only a couple of kids show up because there's a youth group going on or something, that they just gather the couple kids that show up and go out for donuts. And I was sorely tempted to say, what do you say we go for donuts this morning? <laughs> I suspect we might have had a few takers on that one. Okay, um, let me read from Second uh, Kings. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl of Israel had said. By all means, the king of Aram said, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message to him. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man, have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went, to, went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. That's the word of the Lord. Now, before we dive into the text this morning, I also want to give a little context as to What's leading up to this uh, event? First of all, um, Joram is the king of Israel. If you'll remember at this time in Israel's history, it is broken into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah to the south, where Jehoshaphat was king at this time, and Israel to the north, where Joram was king. 
And Joram was the son of Ahab, who we all, I'm sure, remember as being a very wicked and evil king. And while Joram tore down a few of the different uh, altars and so forth, he still was not following the Lord. And right after Ahab had died, the king of Moab had decided, well, let me test this new king just a little bit and see what he's made of. And so they rebelled against uh, Israel, who at the time was ruling over Moab. And Joram went out and he got Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom to join him. And they went out and they were coming up through Edom to attack Moab. And they wandered around in the desert for seven days and ran out of water. Well, long story short, and we're going to get to that story in a moment. The bottom line is God intervened in a miraculous way and basically allowed them to launch a successful campaign against Moab. And so now, just when things have settled down, and it's kind of peaceful, um, although they had been fighting with Aram, which was also called Syria, for decades, back and forth, they were in a period of tenuous peace. And so Joram thinks he has a moment to relax, and right at this moment, in walks Naaman with this letter. And he is certain that it's a trap. Joram panics. He thinks, Ben-Hadad II, the king of Syria, sends this guy over here. It's his favorite general. And when I don't heal him, he's going to use this as an attack, as a reason to attack me. And so he's in a quandary. So that's the setting for today's uh, text. Let's pray. Dear Lord, We don't all have crises to deal with every day that, uh, that can mean the end of our, of our nation. But we do have crises every day that endanger your kingdom. And so often we think it's actually our kingdom that's in danger. And so we ask today, Lord, that as we go through uh, your word, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would open our ears, and that we would have a heart for you, and that we would seek your will in all that we do. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Many of you, probably most of you, uh, know who Vince Lombardi is. Vince Lombardi was perhaps the greatest, if not the greatest, football coach of all times. He coached the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s, and the Super Bowl trophy is actually called the Lombardi Trophy. It's named for him. He's quoted uh, many times, and he has a lot of great quotes that I love, but this is one of my favorites. He said, I firmly believe that every man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. I love that quote. I don't think it's very spiritual, though. But I think that in the heart of every man is the desire to fight the good fight, to fight that battle, to step onto a field, to face his enemy, to face his fears, and to fight to the end victoriously. That's the important part, usually, to end victoriously. Um, general Naaman was a well-known and well-respected general. He was considered the favorite general of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And he had stepped onto that battlefield many times and stepped off victorious. 
He was, in fact, what we would call a man's man. He had risen to the height of his career. He had it all. He had wealth. He had power. He had fast chariots, probably candy apple red. And he was living the life. But now Naaman has a problem. He has a skin disease. Some of your Bibles will call it leprosy. Others will just call it a skin disease. But nonetheless, he has a skin disease and it's incurable. Now the powerful commander is powerless. Soon he'd go from being the man about town that everybody wants to hang out with, that everybody wants to be seen with, to the man that when he walks down the street, people will run to the other side of the street and they won't allow him in their homes. He's going from being, a good example would be the CEO of Enron that everybody thought was just fantastic, to the man that's, that's about to go to prison and nobody wants to be seen with in our culture. Um, and now he's got a real problem. So now what is he going to do? The only thing, the only thing that he can do after spending a lifetime of trusting in his own achievements is to recognize that he is not in control. Um, but the interesting thing here is, in our text, who does it say is responsible for Naaman's achievements? Look at verse 1 for a moment. In verse 1, we're told, because through him, Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman thought it was his victories, but actually we're told God had given him those victories. There's a story about a CEO, and he and his wife were on a trip once, and he pulls into a service station. And as he goes inside to pay gas, he notices, pay for his gas, he notices outside that his wife is talking to the service station attendant. Turns out that this was a man that she had dated in high school. And so the man gets, you know, gets back to the car, and they get into the car, and they're driving down the road in quiet for a minute or two. And he looks at his wife, and he says, you know, he said, I'll bet you know what, uh, I'll bet I know what you're thinking. And she said, what? And he said, I'll bet you were thinking if I had married him, you know, I'd be married to a man who was the service station attendant instead of me, a Fortune 500 CEO. And she said, no. Actually, I was thinking if I had married him, he'd be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you'd be a gas station attendant. <laughs> the question is, who's responsible for your achievements? Who are you giving credit for your achievements? When you sit around the workplace or the coffee clutch, um, who are you saying is responsible for the success you had in business or in sports or in academics or for the quality of the children that you've raised? Who is getting the credit? Is it you or is it God? Naaman thought he had everything. Naaman was larger than life. But now he had a problem that was bigger than himself. And you know, the bigger you think you are, the bigger the God you need to save you. And isn't it interesting how God decides to draw Naaman to him? He doesn't send him a peer. He doesn't send him a general. He doesn't send him a king. Look at verse 2 for a moment. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria he would be cured of his leprosy. 
the only hope for this proud man was to take the advice of a slave girl, not even his slave, his wife's slave, and he was going to have to go into the heart of his enemy's land, and he was going to have to meet a prophet of a God he didn't even believe in. But Naaman did know one thing that a lot of us don't know. Naaman knew he needed a Savior. And when you know you need a Savior, it changes what you do with your life. So Naaman said, i got to go to Israel. The text says that he left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's about 750 pounds of silver and 2,400 pounds of gold. He probably had to have a caravan of 15 to 20 mules or camels just to carry the gold and silver. And then, of course, you've got to have guards to protect it because if you have wealth, you have to protect it, right? You don't want somebody to take that away from you. So, Naaman thought he could buy a miracle. You know, it's not that different. Do you know anybody who is looking for an answer the wrong way? Do you know anybody who thinks that, you know, if they just serve more, if they just do the right works, if they just meditate more, if they just do something else, if they just pursue the right religion, the right faith, as opposed to the right God, that they'll be saved. Do you know somebody like that? There's an opportunity for you to be that servant girl. There's the opportunity to say to somebody, I do know there's a God, and let me tell you about him. And that's what the servant girl was doing. She was pointing Naaman to her God. Are you pointing anyone to your Savior? So Naaman packs up his bags, loads up his caravan, and as was the custom of the times, the first stop he makes is to King Joram to get permission for his quest to go into the heart of the countryside and find Elisha. And what's Joram's response? Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter... He tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Probably shouldn't be too surprised at Jerome's response. I suspect our initial reaction would have been the same. Would have been, God, why are you doing this to me? What are you doing here? I can't solve this. You've given me a problem I can't handle. I'm being asked to do the the impossible, and it's just not fair. And what should our action really be? You know, our first reaction should probably be, God, what would you have me do in this situation? I don't know about you, but most of the time when something hits me, the first thing that I do isn't drop to my knees and say, God, this is a problem I don't know how to solve. The first thing I start doing is wringing my hands like Joram and saying, God, what are you doing here? I thought this. What are you doing? Well, you know, our focus tends to be on me, 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 instead of on God and what God wants. But the interesting thing is, this isn't the first time that Joram had to face what seemed like an impossible task. 
Earlier in 2 Kings chapter 3, we're told that Joram Joram convinced the two kings, as I talked about earlier, Jehoshaphat from the south and the king of Edom, to join up with him and go attack Edom. And so as they're wandering out in the desert, they ran out of water. And Joram's response, once again, he's throwing a pity party. His first reaction is, um, if you look to uh, chapter 3, verse 10, Alas! The Lord has called these three, thing, these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now, what's interesting about that is if you read in the prior verses in that chapter, you're not going to discover anywhere where Joram went to the Lord first or where the Lord called those three kings into the desert. But yet, as soon as there's a problem, it's like it's God's fault. Joram ran out on his own power. And then when it goes wrong, he says, God's fault. God, what are you doing here? Right? Now, the interesting part is Jehoshaphat, if we move to verse 11 in chapter 3, Jehoshaphat is much like the servant's girl's reaction. He turns and he said, is there no prophet of the Lord here? He says, through whom we can inquire the Lord? And then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Well, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured out the water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord's with him. So the king of Israel, then the king of Israel, it should say, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Picking up in verse 16, it says, Elisha tells them, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you, you shall drink you, yourselves, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hands, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And the next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is the blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. I don't know about you, but if I was King Joram, Elisha would have gone on to my speed dial right then. I mean, you know, he finds himself in a terrible situation. He didn't ask for God's counsel. As a second thought, actually, it's someone else's prompting. He goes back to him. And Elisha, on behalf of the Lord, tells them that God is going to do a miracle for them. And he does it. And in fact, actually, if you read in that chapter, Elisha actually says, you know, basically, Joram, I'm not doing this for you. The only reason that God is doing this is because Jehoshaphat is a believer. But if this were you, forget it. You'd be out dying of thirst in the desert. So, once again, what we saw was that Joram saw a worldly problem, but no heavenly solution. Jehoshaphat sees a problem and says, is there a prophet here? You know, he looks to seek the counsel of the Lord, and as a result of pursuing God, a miracle occurs. Now, Joram's getting a second chance. Here we are. 
He can't solve this problem. Joram knows he cannot heal leprosy. Does he say, hey, you know what? Last time I had a big problem, I called Elisha. Somebody go get Elisha. Let's see what he can do about this. No. In fact, he doesn't even send a message. If you look at your text, and I, I can just imagine Elisha sitting there shaking his head, saying, and he says, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. Elisha sent a messenger. Joram didn't send a messenger to Elisha and say, hey, can you help out? Elisha hears about it and, sends a, and says, send him to me, and we'll, uh, he'll find out that there is a prophet in Israel. And, you know, it's kind of easy. You know, it's real easy to be critical of Joram. I know I was sitting there thinking, how stupid can he be? I mean, I, as I said, I'd have put him on speed dial. But would I really have? You know, I've seen God do some pretty amazing things in my life. And, and I've seen him do amazing things in, my, in, in the uh, families around me. And very often, I forget. I just forget about it. How many times have you been angry or frustrated or scared or worried? And you're sitting there trying to figure it out and you're, you know, you're, you're agonizing over it when suddenly somebody, in my case, it's usually my lovely wife, says, have you prayed about this? That's what the servant girl said, you know, take it to God. That's what Jehoshaphat said, have you, you know, take it to God. Um, and, you, and when you turn and you say, God, I don't know what to do. I, I can't fix this. This is not in my power. I submit to you. I put it in your hands. And time after time after time, I've seen God handle it. Not, not always the way I would have handled it. Not always the way I wanted him to handle it. But when I've looked back, I could clearly see God's hand. I've also done, gone through times where I didn't go to God and tried to do it on my own, and I can look back and clearly see how stupid I am. <laughs> you know, We won't talk about that this morning much. Well, anyway, after a long journey, Naaman and his entourage shows up all loaded up with gifts, and he comes up to the house of Elisha, and I'm sure this was a, you know, they probably saw this caravan coming for miles. And I would have been a little curious. I would have wanted to go out and see what's going on. But notice what happens here. Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Imagine, here's this great commander. He's just traveled across basically two nations. He's loaded with silver and gold. He's got his whole entourage. He's got all the people around him, and he doesn't want to look stupid. And he pulls up, and he thinks, this guy is going to be so impressed with me, you know? And Elisha sends out his messenger. And I can just imagine Naaman saying, don't you know who I am? Don't, don't you see all my soldiers? And look at all the gold I brought you. What? You know, and you're not going to come out and talk to me? Who do you think you are? And then, to top it off, he's told, go over that muddy little river over there and dunk yourself seven times. He had to be furious. 
He was being treated like a common leper. And I don't think it was the leper part that was bothering him. I think it was the common part. Read in verse 11, and you can see that his pride was stung. But Naaman went away angry, and he said, I thought that he would surely come out and meet me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of this leprosy. Are not Arbana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of these waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned, and he went off in a rage. He had traveled a great distance. He was prepared to pay vast sums of money. Had Elisha said, go slay a giant, had he said, go fight a dragon, he would have done so. He was ready to fight and die to save himself. As Lombardi would have said, he was ready to work his heart out in a good cause and lie exhausted on the field of battle. Victorious. Even Paul alludes to our militant nature. In Ephesians 6.13, Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. I love that verse. You just, you know, it's, it, it, it's one of those verses that you just say, I want to stand for God. But there's such a pride factor in there of the I. Um, so, and just I'm sure as he's thinking, that's it. I'm done. I'm not dunking myself in that stupid river. And he's getting ready to turn around and leave. His servant says, my father. And notice, by the way, this is a gentle word. I think a lot of times we forget to use a gentle word when we're pointing people back. My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would not you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself into the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Notice, the servants are early evangelists for Reformed theology. She gently instructs Naaman that his salvation cannot be accomplished by acts, but by faith alone. There's a shout-out to Rich, Solus Fidelis. By faith alone. There was nothing Naaman could do on his own except to obey the will of God. He has to do just a simple but humble thing. Jesus Christ asks us to do a simple but humble thing. He asks that we submit. You know, it's easy to obey, but submission is hard. Obedience is the acceptance of authority over you, willingly or unwillingly. Submission is the willing alignment of attitude and purpose to another. Totally different. We're just like Naaman. We have our plan, and we expect God to basically do what we say. We may be willing to fight for God on occasion, um, but only if it's a noble and valiant struggle. Only if it's on the field of battle where we have lots of onlookers, where we have people applauding our commendable efforts for what we're doing for God. 
but ask us to do some simple, humble thing. To forsake our own plans and our own agendas. To do some small task that's not praiseworthy at all. That no one's even going to notice. And well, that's when we start to rebel. You see, battles have a clear beginning and end. Anybody can gear themselves up for a battle, for an event. But submission, on the other hand, is a lifetime commitment. And we're called to that lifetime commitment. So, basically, what we want is we do not want to align our attitude to God. We want God to align to us. We want to say, Lord, fix it. Take care of it. And once you're all done with that, I can get back to being the person everybody's watching, the person everybody's applauding, you know, the person who is the talented man or woman I am. And my kids will love me and my coworkers will think I'm great. But just, God, just don't let them know that I couldn't handle it. Don't let them know that I had to rely on you. I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of people that I've worked with that don't know I'm a Christian. That's a pretty sad statement. They don't know that whatever I've done, whatever success I've had, didn't come from me. It came from the Lord. And I can tell you that I'm proud. I don't like people to think I'm weak. I don't like people to think that I'm incompetent. I don't like people to think I can't handle something. So we hang on to our pride. And in the process, marriages are destroyed, families are broken, friendships are lost, all because we want to keep our pride intact. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been at the point where it's like he doesn't seem to answer your prayers, or worse yet, it seems like he has decided on what to do with your prayer. He's decided to say no, or not now. And a lot of times when that happens... We turn our back on God. And we, don't, we don't say, that's it, God, I'm done with you. We don't go to our prayer partners and say, you know, I'm so mad at God right now that I'm just done. That's it. I'm not talking to him anymore. We just stop talking to him. We just stop going to him in prayer. We just start spending time in the Bible. We just start focusing on things in our life and not on him. We forget him, just like King Joram did. We forget what he's done in our life. And you know, I think that hurts God. I really do believe we have the capacity to hurt God. Have you ever had a friend or a spouse or a child who shuts you out? Who says, I don't want to talk to you anymore? That hurts. And I believe we're made in the image and likeness of God. And I believe when we turn our backs on him, that causes him pain. But there's a way to reconcile. And it's really a simple way. We just have to submit. We have to submit to the God of the universe who is more powerful than anything we could ever imagine. You'd think that'd be easy. But we can't do it. We have to submit to the God that loves us, to the God that has plans for us, to the God that provides for us, to the God that rejoices when the lost sheep comes back. When the prodigal comes home. So what are you willing to sacrifice in order to keep your pride intact?
Are you willing to sacrifice your family? Are you willing to sacrifice your soul? Naaman could leave with his pride intact. But when he left, he'd leave with leprosy, a disease that was going to keep eating away at him until it killed him. Pride does the same thing. Does pride stand between you and your relationship with Jesus Christ? Some of you may not want to surrender to Christ. Some of you don't want to confess that you're a sinner. Some of you don't want to say that you're not good enough. Some of you don't want to say that your wealth, your status, your success is meaningless, that it has no value. Some of you don't want God to be in control of your life. You can keep your pride, but at what cost? Are you dealing with any problems in your life right now? You know, crisis could be God's way of giving you an opportunity to submit. We don't always look at it that way. I know most of the time I'm most willing to submit when I know I can't solve the problem. But then I forget again. But God's concern isn't just about solving our problems. It's not about the physical healing. It's not about the financial healing. It's not about, you know, taking us from a failure to a success. God wants to see obedience. He wants to see humility. He wants us to receive the giver, not the gift. Well, that's not true. He wants us to receive the gift too. <laughs> but he wants us to receive the giver. So where are you in your relationship with God? If you aren't in a place where you want, you're, you're not willing to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I have a question for you. What if you really did believe what if you really, truly believed that Jesus Christ was the Lord and Savior, that he had died for your sins, that he had claimed you as his son, and that you were forgiven? That he was a God who really cares about you. How would that change your life? What if you really lived as though you believed? As many of you know, I've been... Uh, Working on a deal forever, it seems like, but for about two years. Um, and I can tell you that through this process, God's hand has been so clear to me in so many ways um, that there is no way that we would be moving forward without direct and divine intervention. And many times as things collapsed, we sat around the living room of the, the CEO and several of us who were Christians prayed because we didn't know what else to do. And he just didn't know what to make of that. Um, but each time God stepped in, and I have to tell you that this has been a difficult time for my family, but through it all, God's provided. He's pay, provided money to pay the bills. He's kept a roof over our head. He's been gracious in every way at a time when, in fact, I didn't deserve grace. Because the truth of the matter is, we were in that precarious position because of me, because of my pride. And yet, God didn't punish me, but he's been teaching me. And I praise him for that. And it's been awe-inspiring, quite frankly, to see what he did in this process. And as we went through it, you know, we're 11 days. Right now, we are 11 days 
from closing on this company. And the other night, we were working, several of us were working late in the office, and the head of my engineering, as we're busily working, it was 9, 10 o'clock at night, and he looks at me and he says, how's your spiritual life been lately? I have to tell you, if he hadn't been a big burly guy with a mustache, I'd have been certain he was that servant girl. He basically was saying to me, do you know there's a God in Israel? And do you know what he's doing in your life? And do you know that he heals you? And do you know that he brought you to this point? Or are you like King Joram? Have you forgotten? And the truth of the matter was, at that moment, I was like King Joram. And I just thank him for that. I mean, I, what a wonderful thing to have somebody in your workplace who can do that, who can call you to that. God wasn't even finished blessing me yet. We haven't even closed yet. And I was already forgetting him. I was that person. I was Naaman who had success and boasted as though it was mine. I was that stiff-necked Jew in the desert. I was the, the, the Jewish person who passed the Samaritan on the road, who had money and wealth probably at home and didn't bother to spend a dime to help that person out. I was that person. I am that person. But thanks to Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven. But I'm also called to not remain that person. I also realized something else at that moment. I realized that this story just isn't about Naaman trusting God. This story is just as much about a little servant girl, a little unnamed servant girl, and that God can use each one of us, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, whatever our position is, to grow his kingdom. The unnamed slave girl wasn't seeking recognition or reward. She wasn't even seeking revenge for being enslaved. She had every reason to hate Naaman and wish him ill. I mean, after all, they had raided her village, probably killed her friends and family, drug her out to a foreign land, and made her a slave. It would have been very easy for her to look at Naaman, suffering from leprosy, and say, good, he deserved that. But in the midst of a situation where she could have been totally self-absorbed with her own problems, she looked at somebody in need of a God bigger than he was and pointing to her Lord. What a great example for us. Um, I want to be, I want to be like that servant girl. And even in saying it, I feel so inadequate. I mean, I want to be that person who, despite my circumstances, whether good or bad, is pointing people to Christ. We need Christian friends, like the man who, who challenged me. But equally important, we need to be Christian friends. We need to be that person who gets involved. Do you know any Naamans? Maybe they're in this church. Maybe they're not. Do you know someone with a physical ailment, a lingering problem, a problem in their marriage, a problem in their job, a problem with alcohol, a problem with drugs, a problem with pornography, whatever it is, right? We have the opportunity to be that servant girl, to point them to Christ. They may be our neighbor we don't approve of. They may be our family member we don't get along with. They may be our boss who we detest, 
But we have the opportunity in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they are, to point them to Christ. God used a maid to save a dying general. God puts us close to someone, colleagues, classmates, friends, and he gives us the privilege to know something about them, to know something private about them. And God wants us to use that information to provide comfort and to point them to him. God has placed each one of us in this world to make a difference. Finally, I love how this story ends. Verse 14, so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then he turned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God on, in all the earth but in Israel. What happened first? Well, the first step was Naaman had to submit. He had to trust in the word of the Lord. He had to submit his will. And I truly believe that's the secret of every relationship. I think it's the secret of our relationship with God. I think it's the secret of our relationship with those around us, with our bosses, with our spouses, with our peers. Um, submission is at the heart of relationship. Naaman had a problem, and he trusted in God and was healed. Jesus Christ had no problems. And he trusted in the Lord and was killed. But in his death, he modeled how we're supposed to submit and what God can do with our submission because in his death, we were reconciled to God and he provided salvation and healing for all, for all time. This story is also a great illustration of how we can uh, trust the word of God, how we can be reconciled and how we will be reconciled. Look with me a minute. Naaman arrived at, at Elisha's door unclean and unbelieving. And he wasn't granted an audience with Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger off to him. He comes back after trusting in the Lord, clean and believing. And at that time, it says, the text said, he stood before him. That's how we are. We're sinful creatures. We're not fit to be in the presence of our Lord. But if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will see him face to face. So, who are you in this story? Are you King Joram forgetting to trust in God, even though you've seen what he has done in your life? Are you the unnamed servant who's pointing someone else to Christ? Are you the prideful Naaman that turned his back on Jesus Christ, on our Lord, and walked away? Or are you the reconciled Naaman who has chosen to trust in God, submit his will, and is looking for that day when he'll see our Lord face to face? You need to pray. Holy Father, it is just not possible in my own strength to submit each and every day to your will. And yet, in knowing that I was a sinner, and while yet a sinner, you sent your son to die for me. It was truly a gift of love and a gift of grace and one that I did not deserve. And I pray today, as we think of those areas in our lives 
where we have allowed pride to get between us and those around us, between us and you. I pray, Lord, that you would call those to mind and that we would turn them over to you, that we would submit to you, and that we would look joyfully to the day when we will see your face. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.